I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, it's sometimes said that everyone has at least one novel inside them, which is perhaps a way of saying that each of us has a family history, a unique subject matter intensely, perhaps uncomfortably, our own. Family history has been a central preserve of novels since people first started writing them. Because family history is to a great extent private history, hidden history, the novel has seemed like an ideal way to exploit it and explore it. Because the novel allows us to imagine and explore and model realities that are hidden from us. It gives us a way of going places where mostly we are not permitted to go. In a novel we can play at looking inside other people's heads. We can open doors marked private and look inside at the lives of others. But to write family history is not to write a novel. It is what we generally call memoir, the writing of that which we remember. And of course what we remember is fragmentary, hazy and frequently wrong. So if we are interested in writing coherently about our families, we will rapidly move away from memoir in the literal sense, whether in the direction of fiction or towards history. There are countless examples of writers who haven't just written about families, but about their own families. These are novelists. One thinks of Thomas Mann or Proust, or more recently, Austrian writer Elfriede Jelinek. By opting to deal with the subject in a novel, a writer gives himself or herself certain freedoms, but there are limitations. The novel, paradoxically for all its freedom, has to keep an eye on truth to life, or vraisemblance, plausibility. But life, as we know, is famously often stranger than fiction, and a novel must often renounce the truth because it would be too implausible. The relevance of this is particularly strong, I think, in the three books that we'll be talking about this evening, because all three of them have a larger-than-life or an extraordinary quality to them that I think if you were to meet in a novel, you might think, um, as it were, implausible and you know, not appropriate to the form. To write about the family as history, however, not fiction, brings the freedom of truth, but respect for the truth means many things are off-limits. 
We should be talking this evening, I hope, a lot about the consequences of writing as a historian as opposed to writing as a novelist, about the difference between our need for true stories and our need for good ones. But before we do that, I should like to introduce in more detail our panellists, all of them authors of wonderful books of family history. Mary Kay Wilmers on my immediate left, essayist and editor, who has, as deputy editor, co-editor, and from 1992 editor of the London Review of Books, has been in one way or another directly responsible for each of the 700 or more issues of the LRB published since it was founded in October 1979. Her startlingly original book, The Eitingons, a family memoir which is also nothing less than an account of the workings of 20th century history, was published by Faber and Faber on November the 5th. Jeremy Harding on her left is a political commentator, literary critic, and translator. He's the author of two books about contemporary politics, Small Wars, Small Mercies, with his Journeys in Africa's Disputed Nations, and The Uninvited, a report on clandestine migrants and asylum seekers in Western Europe, which won the Martha Gellhorn Prize. Uh, Jeremy has, with John Sturrock, translated the selected poems and letters of Arthur Rambo, published by Penguin. His book, Mother Country, is at once a sustained reflection on his childhood as an adopted child and an account of his search for his natural mother. John Lanchester, on my right, is the prize-winning author of three novels, A Debt to Pleasure, Mr. Phillips, and Fragrant Harbour, which together have been translated into more than 20 languages. As an essayist and critic, he has written extensively on literature, food, football, and the financial world. His book on the banking crisis will be published by Penguin early next year. When his memoir, Family Romance, came out, Blake Morrison wrote, anybody who has grown up in a family with secrets will recognize what John Lanchester is talking about. And that probably means everyone. So I'd like to begin now by asking each of you to give a brief account of your books so that we have a sense of, of what the discussion will be about. So I'd like to start with you, John. Thanks, Nikki. Um, I do say, if you can't hear me at the back, I'm a serial mumbler. Um, Nikki's introduction reminds me of something Gore Vidal once said, that um, everybody has a book in them. The unfortunate thing is that an awful lot of people then go on and write it. <laughs> um, this book was unique in my experience because most books aren't born in a single moment, in a flash of lightning. Uh, but this one was, and it happened about a week after my mother's death, uh, when I found out that this was in 1998, that the, um, her identity, her legal identity, wasn't actually her birth identity. Um, and that her passport, marriage certificate, wedding, um, my birth certificate, uh, the name on, on that as her actually was her younger sister, um, whose identity she'd taken at some point, and I didn't know more than that. Um, and set out to find out why um, some years later after I'd finished basically getting over her loss. Um, I, I, I knew, I'd always known that she'd been a nun um, in India, missionary nun. She was born in uh, Mayo, County Mayo in Ireland in the 1920s. Um, uh, very poor, in a very poor place. And um, was the eldest of eight, uh, seven of whom were sisters. And um, you know, there was an immediate problem about what to do with them. And in her case, she went into the church. I knew that. Um, it was, wasn't a secret, but it was private. That's a distinction we might talk a bit more about. I think it's a very important <coughs> distinction between privacy and secrecy. Um, so it wasn't that you were, weren't allowed to know it, but it wasn't sort of freely bruited abroad. 
Um, but what I didn't know was that, in fact, instead of the sort of few years that she implied she'd been uh, in, the, in the convent, okay. she'd actually been in for 15 years, um, uh, 10 of which were spent in, in India as a missionary. Um, and I also didn't know that, in fact, she'd briefly been a nun before that at age 16. She left school before doing her uh, leaving <coughs> certificate. Uh, this is in Ireland in 1936. Uh, and went off to join um, uh, uh, an order and left after nine months through her doing her novitiate. Um, basically, I think, because she couldn't bear it. In fact, that order was the order that subsequently... Um, that they ran the Magdalen convents, which are now so notorious. Um, and I think she just couldn't stand it. She left and went home and um, basically was shamed, uh, she felt... Um, uh, shamed and sh shunned and she had no, um, for instance no clothes, she was only allowed to go around in her a modified version of her nun's habit and uh, rural Mayo in the mid-thirties was not especially kind of forgiving place and she used to be pointed out and there goes the ex-nun and things like that so she ran away from home, trained as a nurse, got a job working uh, in a hospital treating TB TB was endemic in Ireland in the forties contracted TB, uh, was treated from it, for it in the same hospital, fell in love with one of the other patients. Um, I think he was probably the first Protestant she ever met. Uh, he's a man called Nicholas Royal. They got engaged, she recovered, went home to wait for the wedding, and uh, he died. And that was the point at which she went back into the convent. Um, uh, all these were things I found out subsequently, and they are basically the story of the book. Um, but I found that I couldn't tell that story without telling the story of my father's life. Because my father's life experiences, he was um, evacuated, he was brought up in Hong Kong, evacuated to Australia during the war, didn't see his parents for about six years. And that gave him a very um, vulnerable side. He didn't, he disliked, he was embarrassed and disliked strong feeling. And I think my mother's plan would have been to tell him at some point that she'd made years of her life disappear in order to seem younger than she was. Um, and then she, I think she found she couldn't because it would have upset him too much. Um, so this story of my mother coming out of the convent and making a decade of her life disappear by borrowing her sister's identity actually turned out to be also the story of my father's life. Um, and then in fact this, I've found reflecting on it the story of mine because um, the imprint it had on me, on my childhood, on the sense of secrecy and privacy um, went very deep and uh, finally in conclusion because we've got lots to talk about um, the, the, I think the most surprising thing I found was that um, after I discovered this, this narrative I, I suddenly realised that my first three novels actually are all about secrets that can't be told and the narrator's relationship with the reader and to an extent the narrator's relationship with him or herself is that they have a, a story that they actually can't tell it's not quite the same as being a liar, but uh, it's to do with things that are unvoiceable. And um, that was the, the least expected thing um, that I found, was that actually this un untold, untellable story actually turned out to be um, very, very directly um, the story of my life too. Thank you. Thank you, John, very much. Jeremy, would you now? Yeah. Um, the book I wrote has its origins really in um, a, a simple matter of adoption. I was an adopted child. I was told as, as, early, it was, as early as possible, in other words, as early as, as I might have understood that this was the case. Um, 
I didn't pay it as much attention as I perhaps should have because uh, other things got in the way. And it was sort of a peripheral issue uh, in my life for a very long time. Um, and when I got to uh, my, my sort of mid to late 40s um, and my adoptive parents, uh, one, well, one, my father died and, and my mother was no longer really in a position to understand what was going on in, in, in the rest of the world. Um, uh, I felt that it was probably safe to look into uh, um, my, my natural origins. Um, and this interested me partly as a, it was, it was a sort of project. Um, I wanted to write something about my natural mother, whatever I could establish about her. I also thought that it was safe to assume that she would no longer be alive. In, in fact, I felt as safe as houses, actually, about doing this project. Um, and so gradually, when I had the time, I went through the processes that uh, some of you may know about, which are, which are quite tiresome, but, but uh, uh, never, never wholly without interest in trying to work through the paperwork and permissions. Um, set it aside for a year or more, um, and then went back to it in earnest to try and have a look uh, at the places that I knew that uh, uh, my natural mother had, had been identified as being in. One was the White City Estate, and that was basically where I started the geographic work. But I also did a, a, a great deal of work uh, in, in, in the archives, the electoral rolls, and, uh, and also in the Family Records Centre. Um, straightforward stuff, really. But at the same time, there was something very, very insistent I found in the course of searching for this person that I'd never seen or hadn't for an extremely long time. Um, there was something very insistent about my, my, my adoptive parents. They seemed to me to be coming back to, to want a story told as well. And, and um, that included the story of my own adoption, which was told to me in a, a marvelously epic and occasionally ludicrous way by my mother, who was, she had a terrific imagination and, and made the adoption a, a very sort of comforting um, and um, attractive, seductive story. Um, that is basically the way the book goes. Um, and I, I thought what I'd do to, to sort of cut it short is to, to read a little from the introduction about, about, uh, about the kind of uh, way in which it was written. Um, a search of this kind is supposed to be methodical, but the method is bound to involve a certain madness. I've tried to give a sense of the spectral realms you enter when you're looking for people you don't know, about whom there's little in the way of hard fact. Wild conjecture is always ready to fill in the gaps or lead the way to comic misunderstandings, and adoption has any number of those. Meanwhile, the people you lived with and thought you knew come out of the past asking to be revisited or even addressed. What are we to say to the dead, that we might have loved them better? <coughs> this is a book about mothers and fathers, real and imagined, and about two mothers in particular. Thinking about mothers seems to me to be like straying into Indian country, tricky terrain for small boys and aspiring men trying to work out the geography. The pitfalls are not really to do with mothers themselves, and there's no obvious struggle going on as there was in the case of Native American lands, no wagon trains and cavalry detachments trespassing avidly on ancestral ground. Even so, the contours of, of mother country are sometimes daunting, and knowing where you are or quite who's out there can be hard, since to some extent, since to some extent the child creates the mother in its mind, a charmed, unreliable place where real people and events undergo strange transfigurations. One of my mothers was so eccentric as to seem like a figment of several different imaginations, including hers and mine. The other was, for most of my life, a mother of the mind. 
I'm not sure we can ever say much that's useful about the people we carry in our heads until we've managed to see them as people in the world, as I've tried to do here. And that was really the, the point, was to, to bring somebody back to life uh, whom I'd not known a great deal about, and then really to, to, to go on the trail of, uh, of uh, the person who put me up for adoption. That's it, really. Thank, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Mary Kay, you're going to read a bit from your book, I think. Well, I've, I find it very difficult to talk about my book other than the words with which I wrote it. So I'll begin by reading a bit of it and see if I can do a bit better explaining it afterwards. At the villa in Coyoacan, where in August 1940 Trotsky was murdered, there are two cats, a ginger one called Trotsky and a black one named after his murderer, Ramon Nakader. The villa has for many years been a museum, and for a while visitors could wander about as they pleased. They could lie down on Trotsky's bed or sit where he was sitting when Nakader struck him with the most famous murder weapon in modern history. Today, the rooms where he'd been living for the previous year and a bit are protected by a glass partition running along the corridor at waist height. The partition is alarmed, and every time a visitor leans over it, which most visitors do, the alarm goes off. Out in the yard, a red flag flies at half-mast over the old man and his wife Natalia's grave. A nine-foot slab of concrete with a hammer and sickle and Trotsky's name carved into it. The yard isn't big, but there's room for several tropical trees and some very large cacti. With the bougainvillea in bloom, the two cats nestling against each other in the spring sun, it seems quite idyllic. Only the sound of the alarm reminds you that in Trotsky's day, this was less a villa than a fortress, but the tower in the corner looking out over the street was a real watchtower, that visitors were barred, and most of Trotsky's entourage carried guns, but in short, an emissary from Stalin was at all times expected. Makadar struck Trotsky's head with the broad end of the ice pick. Trotsky cried out, a long, endlessly long hour, as Makadar remembered it, stood up, bit Makadar's hand, was pushed to the ground, got back up on his feet. Seizing whatever was to hand, books, ink pot, a dictaphone, he threw it at his assailant before wrenching the ice pick from him and finally staggering back, his face covered in blood, his blue eyes glittering, his spectacles gone. Though they'd been living in anticipation of this moment for more than a decade, the rest of Trotsky's household didn't under immediately understand what was happening and three or four minutes went by before they came running into the study, fell on Melkader and began to beat him with the butts of their revolvers. At that point, Melkader lost his nerve. They made me do it, he shouted. They've got my mother. It was his only moment of weakness and no one knew what he meant. Natalia, seeing that Melkader's life was in danger, asked her husband what was to be done with him. Tell the boys not to kill him, he said, and then said it again. No, no, he must not be killed. Trotsky wanted Makadar to live so that he could tell the world on whose orders he'd been sent. But Makadar spent 20 years in a Mexican jail, six in solitary confinement, and in that time never let on that he'd acted on the Kremlin's instructions. Had Trotsky died straight away and in silence, Makadar would have escaped. That, at any rate, had been the plan. A car was waiting close to the villa, its engine running. Inside it were Makadar's mother, and the Soviet agent in charge of the operation. The agent was called Leonid Eitingon. He was a relative of mine. Leonid Eitingon, at the height of his career, a general in the KGB, wasn't a close relative. 
In fact, most of the Eitingons whom I knew well, starting with my mother, didn't want to accept that he was a relative at all. However, in the late 80s, when the Soviet Union was still alive, though faltering, an article appeared in the New York Times fingering the Eitingon family. It was entitled Intellectuals and Assassins, Annals of Stalin's Killerati. And what the author wanted his readers to know was that the men who did Stalin's dirtiest work were not necessarily brutes, but, I'm quoting him, sensitive and cultivated people in the highest levels of intellectual society. And the sensitive and cultivated people he had in mind were indisputably members of the Eitingon family. And that, in a rather tight nutshell, is what the book is about. Max Eitingon, for instance, was a central player in the Freud circle. He was, as it were, good to Freud and financially supportive of the whole psychoanalytic project. The question is whether he was supporting the work of his relative in the KGB at the same time. My other Eitingon big man is Motti, whom the family remembered as charming, warm-hearted, generous, a lover of the arts. The larger world, where it remembers him at all, remembers him as the greatest fur dealer of the century. His speciality was getting furs cheaply from Siberia and selling them dear in America. Was he being helped by the KGB Eitingon in this venture, and was he helping the KGB in return? This kind of writing comes under the rubric of family history, but two things are going, are going on. The family has provided me with a way into history, and the seduction of the history allows me to understand something about the family. Thank you very much. That's, that's wonderful. I mean, I think the thing that immediately strikes one about Mary Kay's book is the way in which the story of these three men uh, gives one a real sense of the way in which the larger movements of history actually take place. It takes you behind the kind of surface narrative that, that, that appears in newspapers and um, sort of official histories, as it were. And uh, this, is, this is a wonderful aspect of the book. And the, 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 the three men, Motti, Max, and Leonid, are very big figures. And they are, I think you can genuinely say, that they are actors in history. They actually make a difference to what happened in the 20th century in a really quite direct way. Um, now, that isn't true of either John's or Jeremy's book. Um, they're writing about, in a sense, private rather than public history. I mean, the Eitingans were active on a public stage, whereas John's family and Jeremy's family were m more obviously private like the rest of us. But at the same time, I was particularly struck by the way in which both these books bring with them fascinating insight into the historical milieu, the historical medium, um, which leads to uh, the present. And I'd like to ask John, first of all, to talk a little bit about what you discovered about rural Ireland, there are three real elements of, of history in this book. The, the, the part of the book at the beginning deals with rural Ireland in the 1920s and 30s. There's the central part of the book, which is dealing with um, a Roman Catholic church. It's pretty, pretty horrendous. I mean, it's, I mean um, it tells you things that I think, and certainly I didn't know about, about the repressiveness of, the, of all that. And then also there's fascinating stuff about internment in Hong Kong. His parents were interned in Hong Kong during the Second World War when the Japanese invaded. So I wonder if you'd just speak a little bit about those, those things. Well, I, I think the main thing I think about it is that nothing is quite as past as the recent past. Um, certainly in Ireland, um, I was writing about rural Ireland 
just around the time of the end of the Civil War and of independence. And um, it was a hard and harsh place, and to an astonishing extent, extent astonishing to me, um, there's a very strong will to forget about it, you know, especially young people, um, especially people under 40. Um, uh, there's kind of collective desire to move on and to, for Ireland to be a modern country. Um, and uh, it was very, one of the most striking responses I had to the book was from young Irish readers saying, you know, I had no idea it was like that. Um, I think that thing, theme about the recent past is one of the things that's interesting about family history, especially things that touch on memory. It's in all these books in different respects, I think, that um, the thing that's just being lived through is there's a trick of memory or a trick of um, the sort of spotlight of attention and historical attention that um, the recent past is somehow particularly dead and particularly inaccessible. Um, and certainly, um, just, you know, the very, I lived in a whole bunch of places in the Far East um, when I was a kid in Borneo and Calcutta and, and Burma and that particular historical moment was, was we were we kept moving from place to place because we kept being kicked out because the banks kept being nationalized they, they, they had something to teach us um, and uh, um, my d dad worked for a bank so we kept being kicked we lit in Burma we were under house arrest for six months we put under house arrest the day after we arrived because they literally nationalized the banks that day and um, that period of history is just completely gone. And uh, I, I do th find something very striking, very interesting about that, just as in Jeremy's book, it's very much about class. You know, it's astonishing that the attitudes uh, to do with uh, adoption, I hadn't realized it's so saturated with issues of, of yeah. class. Yeah. And in Mary Kay's case, it's the, it's the Cold War, which is, um, you know, Napoleon said that you're sh man shaped by what he was like, at, what the world was like when he was 20. When I was 20, the, was raging, and the goneness of that is uh, astonishing. No, I was just going to say that the sense in which it's gone is that when I was in Moscow at one point looking for this man, I went to the Lubyanka. I, I couldn't get in. It had a press office, but like all press offices, there was no one there. And so I'd seen John Simpson on, on television just walk into the Lubyanka, so I thought, well, I'll walk in too and see what happens. But actually, so many people, including some of the people I work with, have never heard of the Lubyanka, and that to me is completely unimaginable because I spent my whole life, as it were, thinking about the Lubyanka, that's an exaggeration, but I mean, it was always there. And now it's just completely disappeared. Yes, I mean, do you, Jeremy, do you feel that that applies to your story in the sense that the class element in, in the book that John refers I, to? I, 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 I'm interested. I mean, I think I can respond to that by saying that, that there is a sense in which time is quite elastic once a writer turns his or her attention to it. I mean, it's as if it sort of expands or contracts according to the temperature of the, the writerly focus. Uh, and, and in my case... <laughs> It certainly wasn't an epic, but there was a kind of small world uh, into which I was thrown, which was the world of West London and points further west, because really my, my research ground for this book was, was the White City Estate, uh, uh, which, was which was begun actually in the, um, 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 uh, between the wars. Um, and it turned out, when I looked at the paperwork that I was doing, that, that, that my mother had uh, been living in the in the White City Estate when I was born. And clusters of 
information began to kind of aggregate around this place and lead to other parts of West London, particularly to the parts where I had grown up. I mean, this was the astonishing thing. So really I found I was dealing with a strange paradox of contiguity and immense distance between my natural relatives and the people who adopted me. Because really, as it turned out, I mean, we were, we were practically within walking distance of each other. But in fact, the, um, the, the different countries we inhabited were so to totally separate, run according to so, such very different rules. And these were the rules of class and courtesy uh, um, and deference to some degree that uh, there was no point of contact between them as a general rule. I mean, it turned out in my case that, that my, my adoptive mother did have a way, a way across several classes, uh, but had she not had that, uh, these would have been completely hermetically sealed environments very, very close together. And that turned into a period piece for me, really, about the 1950s, I suppose. And turning a little bit away from this now, but connected to it, and this question of perspective and the recent past, um, and the way in which the recent past is in some sense inaccessible, makes me think of the way in which, as a child, um, the past out of which you emerge is peculiarly obscure. When you look back in your life and you think about the perspective, looking backwards to your earliest memories, it becomes, it's a very strange medium, and times particularly odd as you get older, Many different time scales seem to be operating. And reading these books, it made me wonder, it, made me, it struck me that, that, that if you're writing family history, you are writing, you are an adult, but you are writing as a child. You have to be writing as a child because you're writing about these mythic characters, your parents or your grandparents, whoever it is, who don't really have the kind of ordinary scale that, that people do in everyday life and also... Uh, if you're writing straight history. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, Mary Kay, for example, you're, the, the people you write about seem to me to have, you managed to bring out the quality of, of the giant in them, really. And I wonder whether that had anything to it's do more with my you. attitude to men. Is your attitude to men? <laughs> I see them all as giants. You know, just, um, but was there, a, was there any sense in which you, were, you felt you were writing about these these mythic figures from your family's past who were really bigger than they might have seemed if you were simply writing history, if you'd come to them as a historian with no connection to them? Well, it's different. I mean, the only one I knew was a mythic figure of my childhood, and, and I found it painful, not very, but still painful to bring him down to size and to see that he was a man who, when I was a child, was fabulously rich. Uh, then it turned out that all that time he seemed to have no money or was constantly in debt or just juggling from one company to another in a way that I still don't understand. Um, but Leonid, the, the killer, I see from his family's point of view. I mean, I, you know, my family, we really didn't know that he existed. I, at some point I covered on to something and was rather pleased with the notion of being related to a killer. But I only really look at him from his family's point of view. And the third one, the psychoanalyst, is more mysterious. He's, um, he's, I don't know, he, he's more on my level. Um, I mean, John, you invoke Freud in the title of your book, yeah. um, and specifically the 
sort of Ur triangle, the original um, Oedipal triangle, the family romance. So it suggests to me that you are very conscious of writing as a child when you wrote this book. And I wonder the, about the ways in which, I mean, you're a novelist, you're a professional writer, did this present particular problems um, that, that you hadn't come across, as it were, in other kinds of writing that you've done? It does, definitely. I mean, for, in case there's any non-Freudian present, we usually have a system of screening, but in case there isn't, <laughs> um, Freud called the, described the family romance as your, you basically your wish for your parents to be more interesting than they are. You know, to think of them as kings or princes, and you were adopted, and actually um, you're you know, President Obama's secret love child or something. Um, and it always it resonates deeply with me as an idea, um, partly because there was quite a lot of fiction in the story I was telling. And, um, there's more than one sort of romance, and um, I, I was interested in that. Um, and partly because um, I think Freud's sort of wrong, because actually I think your parents often are more interesting than you think. Um, and when you're a child, there's such features of the landscape, you don't really understand that they're actually human beings too. And um, there's a sort of tipping point as you get older, you actually start seeing them as, as sort of strangers. Um, and they, in that sense, become um, both less like totemic mythical figures and perhaps humanly more, more real. Um, there, there are unique problems to writing about um, real people in general. I found it about my parents in particular. Um, that to do with an obligation to... Um, uh, with, with fiction, you can do anything with your characters as long as it feels true. They can turn into robots, they can journey to Mars, they can um, do anything. Um, with uh, a, a memoir, you, you, you precisely can't do that. It, it, it has to be true. Um, and uh, the obligation for a kind of fidelity um, and veracity uh, weighs quite heavily, actually, compared to writing fiction, where you have a kind of existential freedom that you just don't have. And when they're people you know very well and, and love very deeply, um, the stakes are raised because you... Um, you know, I was very aware of the fact that this book would be read by, um, you know, ideally uh, a lot of people um, who knew nothing about my parents and who would never meet them or encounter them except on the page. And that created a, uh, a, a responsibility, I suppose, that's what it boils down to. Um, fiction can be irresponsible except it's its own kind of eternal rules. But um, memoir and family history has to be responsible in that sense. Well, that makes me wonder also about what I'd like to call the will to coherence. I mean, if you are a writer, you are obviously trying to write a book that is good to read and that has appropriate proportions and uh, so on and has some sort of aesthetic qualities. And indeed, in the writing of single sentences, uh, you will be very conscious of this. But at the same time, you are a historian, as you describe, and you have a responsibility to tell the truth as best you can. To what extent did the, as, it, as I call it, the will to coherence or the will to aesthetic um, satisfaction in the book, uh, sh as it were, act as a, as a force that pulled the book away from uh, fact uh, towards, not exactly fiction, but towards the aesthetic? Uh, Jeremy, could you talk about that? Partly because, actually, in your book, I think what's incredibly interesting is the double movement of the book. I mean, you've got the search for the natural mother that, to my reading, became increasingly like a fairy tale, actually, not like a novel, mm -hmm. but like a fairy tale, even though it was factually the most 
contained thing, the most accurate thing in the book. The, the part of the book that deals with the past with your, with your adopted mother um, had novelistic qualities to it. But I just, mm. what, could you talk a bit about that? Well, that's a structural point, really. But just, to, just to, before I do, to get back to the question of one's infancy and how it seems to kind of return in the writing, um, I think that's really quite a, quite a crucial point. Um, if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details and um, I was always very tempted to, to, to go with, with, with what I remembered as my memories I mean I'd be that cautious of saying it and very often I felt it safer to refer to, to the child in the book to the me in the book as the boy or the child or her little boy thought, thought this or, or I remember him thinking that because it seemed to me to put sufficient distance between myself and that child uh, as to introduce an element of doubt. I don't really trust my memory. I, I have a bad memory, actually. Um, um, and this actually has a, has a bearing on structure uh, because it's true that the, 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 the account of, of my search for, uh, for, for, um, for, for, for traces of my natural family um, it was pretty, pretty straightforward as narrative goes. I mean, there were twists and turns to it, but it was a story that began and ended. But it's interspersed with a lot of material um, in, in which I'm simply re-invoking what it is I know or thought I knew about the family I grew up with. Uh, and I felt that as I came to the end of a draft of this book, that it had a structure of its own and that, that I had to observe it. Yes, by thinning out and focusing. I just want to say something about the books. It's only just occurred to me about writing it as a child. That my mother, who's a very, very inconsistent woman, and I'm rather literal-minded, so that I was always pointing out to her that what she said yesterday wasn't what she was saying today. And she used to <laughs> say, snake in the grass, or listen to the snake. And actually, the whole book is snake speak. 
can you expand upon that? But I have <laughs> snake speaking. What, what well, I'm telling these stories about these three men who, oh, yeah. in some sense, were up to no good. Mm. They were, well, maybe the psychoanalyst wasn't. Um, they were all members of my family. My mother does come into it. So, so in passing, does my father. So the whole thing is really. And there's a photograph of me at the beginning looking like. Um, Ian McEwan's Bryony Fur, the person who's going to tell the disobliging story. <laughs> okay, now we'll move on now to the question of blood and connectedness. And I'm particularly interested in this, partly because I, I notice in myself, um, well, all the time, I must say, magical thinking, but in respect to this particular issue, especially so. Um, and just to give you an example, I, I am married to... A, a German who is a direct descendant of Friedrich Engels, which, which I really rate. I think oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and I mean, I won't say there isn't a day I go around without some sort of consciousness of my connection with Friedrich Engels, but it is sort of there. It plays a part in our son, Anton, um, from a fairly early age, from the age at which he could begin to appreciate the you know, world historical significance of his role. Um, <laughs> began to work this fact into almost every essay he wrote at school <laughs> and usually providing you know accommodatingly a family tree with him at the bottom of it so this as it were it all led to me but there is something really really irrational about this of course because I have nothing to do with this man at all I mean it's not in my my family in any sense of the word really and actually even if it were to be the case what how could it be relevant but yet we carry these things around with us. We have this sense that somehow where we have come from, these people bear upon us in some slightly more magical way than simply uh, you know, the fact that they influenced us as children. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, John, do you have any thoughts about this? Uh, well, funny enough, I think it, it, it touches on what we were just, about, just talking about, about the story. Uh, I think um, it's Jonathan Rabin who says... Um, fiction doesn't come from some imaginary Latin word ficio meaning make up, it's from the, the verb is fingere and it's the, for shaping things on a potter's wheel it's as in fingers and um, I think these books are in that, in that sense works of fiction not because they have things made up but because they're consciously shaped and I think, I think lots of um, I think one sense of connectedness to family is like that um, I think that you sort of half inherit, half choose the what you get from your family. And I think a, a better way of thinking of it than than the sort of um, you know, as it were, you take on sort of genes or memes and that terrible, I think, idea about ideas inherit. It's more as if um, families have certain themes running through them. There are sort of themes in, in family histories. It, as I got to know my Irish extended family, um, it's very striking that they, as I said, my mother was the eldest of eight, and you know most of them are still around and have lots of cousins. And there's a very striking kind of theme in the family about secret keepers and, and truth-tellers or blurters. Um, blurters is what we secret keepers call the people who say things. Um, and, you know, that's, it's not exactly... Um, you couldn't say it was really purely genetic but it's a very strong theme and it's you know it, it runs quite deeply in my own life as well and there are various preoccupations that run through my father's story ab about um, 
you know about work and um, how you choose to sort of um, what freedom was you know my father and his father both um, worked incredibly hard his father was a school teacher who trained as a dentist because he f- thought there'd be more money in it and money was freedom and he ended up interned in a Japanese prison camp basically because he'd gone to Hong Kong looking for a high paying job and it's extraordinarily clear looking at the story of his life from the outside that this search for freedom was entirely trapping you know, he, he ended up literally in prison for, for five years <coughs> because of it and uh, my father was a wage slave worked for Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank his whole life took early retirement and died very young, died almost immediately. And again, there was a real um, bitter sting to the idea that this pursuit of freedom actually, because you know, money is freedom, they both thought, except that in both their cases it wasn't. And that's a very profound theme in my life too, I think, you know, that I inherited a preoccupation with doing what I want to do because they're example of men who didn't and paid a high <coughs> price for it. Um, I couldn't say that was genetic, really, but I, th- I do think it's a sort of theme. I mean, I think in my case it's, it, it's sort of less entrenched and less subtle. I mean, it would be hard to... It's an obvious case, isn't it, the, the, the one of adoption. You're, you're going to be thinking about blood and whatever the opposite of blood in, is. In, in my case, it seemed to me to be water, but that was given to me as a sort of... as a charm, really, because the, I grew up by water. I mean, I spent the first seven or eight years of my life in, in this very congenial environment where I, I seem to be endlessly surrounded by water, indeed encroached on by water. The place used to flood uh, um, and uh, this flooding and this coming and going of water was something that I, I, I took on board quite quickly as, a, as an image of the non-blood relationship. I mean, water came to me to stand, you know, I think of shipping lanes and I think of the Thames and all kinds of stuff. I see water as uh, not only a sort of profound elemental symbol, but I see it as a, as a, as a sort of place of commerce uh, and movement and civility and trade and encounter. Um, and I found myself in the writing of this book opposing all those things to the idea of the blood tie. Because I think really what I wanted to do was I, I wished to, to give a defense of adoption, actually. I mean, I can't deny that. I, I had nothing against it. <laughs> On the contrary, um, it seemed to me one of the kind of... Uh, uh, one of the great things that, 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 that we can do. Um, and so there is, in, in the way I've thought about it, this quite straightforward opposition between the genetic tie and the non-genetic tie. Thank you. Now, before we move to questions, there's just a couple of other things I'd like to, to talk about. Um, and if we could move to privacy and secrecy and the relationship between them, which is really perhaps the sort of hottest aspect of this subject. Um, so I suppose one of the things that's interesting is all three books are in their different ways concerned with secrets. And obviously the writing of them is concerned with or involves some sort of encroachment upon privacy or at least the need to negotiate the question of privacy. Um, but Mary Kay, your book is, is rather different from the other two in that secrecy has an almost kind of um, celebratory or joyous role in the book. I mean, these three men were using secrecy as a way to fashion their lives, and they seemed actually in many respects to enjoy it. Well, to fashion a country, in Lenin's case, um, his secrets were state secrets, and um, they were very important to him, and that was 
the, the family made a big thing about how it didn't, we don't talk about these things. We are not like that. I mean, his, his family, his grandchildren, children, step, uh, stepchildren, um, we are not like that. We do not blab. We, we are very controlled. We keep our country secrets. It's, it's, it's a mission. The other two, well, the psychoanalyst, it, it's unclear what he was up to, if anything. It's just quite pleasing that the psychoanalyst can, be, can live a double life. It, it, it appeals to me. Um, but whether he did or not, I don't know. Um, and the, the, the fur dealer, well, his secrets were to do with his not altogether honorable financial dealings. Um, the other thing I think about secrets is that in, in families, I mean, you, you write a family history, you leave certain things out because they don't fit the story you're telling, and then they become a secret. You know, a dark secret. She hasn't mentioned such and such. Well, no, because it didn't fit the story and it was too complicated. But it, there's no agenda in it. Um, so some, some things are inadvertent and have less to them than that. And, and Jeremy, what about the question of privacy and its relation to the secrets well, I agree with involved? We were talking before we came here, and, and John was saying that, that, that privacy and, and uh, secrecy are entirely different things. I mean, the difficulty is what, what, what the going mode, what the, what the culture at any given minute makes of this distinction. I mean, my sense is that our privacy is being being regarded increasingly as, as a secret and something that, we're, that everybody's entitled to. Well, it's to your know. privacy and secrecy in someone else's eyes. Yeah. Um, um, I haven't much to say about secrecy as, as, as regards the, the writing, except that um, I think that, that Family Romance, John's book, I mean, uh, really, the, the secret, um, Julie, Julia, Mrs. Lanchester's secret, is an immense kind of core in the book. Uh, everything, once you've got hold of it, begins to flow. You begin to understand uh, quite how difficult um, the ground be became for her and also the people to whom she, she'd not divulged this secret. In my case, it was pretty straightforward. I was, I was a secret as an adopted child. Um, I was told to keep it within the parental framework only. Uh, and then when I did find my natural mother, um, which is quite extraordinary. Um, about the fifth thing that she told me uh, over a splendid lunch was that I'd have to be a secret again <laughs> at the age of 50 because the clan couldn't at that stage uh, really take me on board. I mean, later on, in fact, it worked out. Um, John, secrecy and privacy. Well, I, uh, you know, my history gives me a sense of secrecy as something radioactive. If you can't if you can't say it, it's a secret. That would yeah. be um, my rough definition. And um, I, th I do think it's a thing that's a rare... But in fact, to be honest, um, I'll never do this ever again, I swear, but I, it's a thing I, I got from uh, some, a member of New Labour. Um, and it was Peter Mandelson talking about his you know, private life, his, his uh, boyfriend. He just said, well, it's not secret, but it is private, so I'm not going to yeah. talk about it. And I was really struck by that as a particularly kind of thoughtful yeah. distinction and one that, if we're not careful, will be, will be eroded. Mm -hmm. I think secret is that if it's not radioactive, it's, it, it doesn't count as a secret. It might just be something you want to keep to yourself. Yeah. 
So finally, before we go to questions, I just want to quote something that you, John, um, write in your book. Paraphrasing Auden, you say, to truly know someone, you must love them. Now, this put me in mind when I was reading the book of, of an old Polish lady I knew in New York who was in her 90s at the time. She was the wife of a very great, largely now unremembered, Polish Jewish American pianist called Arthur Balsam. I was very interested in this pianist, so I went to talk to Mrs. Balsam. And at a tea party we were having at one point, there was a, a young American musician there who was particularly sycophantic, I thought, but he turned to her and said, Mrs. Balsam, why did everybody love your husband? And she looked astonished, and she turned to him, a very old lady, a little beat bird-like old lady. She turned and sort of looked at him over her spectacles and said, they just didn't know him very well. <laughs> and they'd, they'd been together for actually 70, 74 years. So I would now like to just to ask you about this. Do you think that Auden was right, that to truly know someone, you must love them? Or is it the other way around? Do you love people by getting to know them? Very don't good. ask me. <laughs> you know I don't think it. You don't think it? No. no, but I'm much too ambivalent in every way to think it. I think you can, you can be more knowable than you, you can be lovable. In other words, it, 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 there isn't a clear, there, there isn't a, a sort of royal road through, through, through love to knowledge. Um, but I guess it helps. I mean, I think it's like writing, doing the kind of stuff we're doing. I mean, what, what does writing do? It actually, it actually constructs knowledge, doesn't it? We're, we're, we're all sitting here writing because it, there is something we wish to know and it might transpire in the course of this writing. We'll understand it. And I think, in a way, this is the sense of the Auden point, that, 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 um, that love constructs knowledge. I think that, that's... But yeah. You don't have to agree with it. But it's so it's a wonderful idea, else. does it? But, it, but in, in the Auden... Hate view, constructs yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's no tomorrow. Yeah. I, 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 Auden's was answering Freud's idea that all love is overvaluation that love is just a sort of mistake of um, thinking someone's fantastic then you get to know them and you realise they're not mm. um, unless you sort of think they're partly your parents in which case you'll probably stay in love with them anyway by mistake and um, uh, Auden's view is that actually it's a very beautiful and rich idea I hope it's true I don't, I'm not sure that it is but it's such a, a suggestive idea that's why I quoted it was that actually um, that that to be sort of saturated in knowledge of someone. It's because he was a Christian, I think he thought this. Um, uh, it was by an analogy with a version of sort of parental love that um, you only see them completely if you love them because you only really get them. I suppose a modern way of putting it would be to get someone completely, you have to love them. Um, and one of the reasons it resonates, um, it's, it comes slightly out of my experience of writing fiction, which is that to make characters alive, as Graham Greene said, you it has to have a tiny fragment of yourself it doesn't have to be all of you but it has to have a tiny fragment of your kind of your being and I think that in a way is connected with love even the characters that are ghastly you, to make them alive you slightly have to love them and of course John Bailey, Iris Murdoch's husband wrote a book called The Characters of Love which was about precisely that fact um, or that idea um, just you know reading all three of these books I, I suppose partly because this one gets older people start to die, you start to lose people. 
one of the things that is particularly horrific about that is the speed with which they get sucked into oblivion, the speed with which forgetting starts to take place. And of course, this, this thing that one has to come to terms with, which is that essentially, once you're dead, I, mean, I always think this, you know, people forget you pretty, pretty quickly. Um, I mean, in, in offices, it's always struck me. I mean, I've worked in offices for 30 years, and if somebody, this is not about close, close connections, but if somebody connected with the office, somebody who's quite, you know, quite um, familiar, perhaps has been doing work for the, for, as, as a supplier or as a printer or something for many years, they suddenly die and they have an accident and then people come in in the morning and think, oh my God, you're here, you know, Tony's dead. And you know, everybody sort of clutches them. God, how dreadful what happens, so on and so forth. Then they go and sit down at their desk. By about 11 o'clock, um, they're sort of, yeah, Tony, you know, it's Really, I mean, it's extraordinary, really, what he used to do, and it's sort of reminiscing of a quite reverent kind. The joke started about two in the afternoon, and by the next day, uh, that's it, they're gone. But, you know, and there is a real sense in which we have great trouble holding on to the memories of the people that we love. And these books are, each of them, each of these books is a kind of act of celebration and of restoration and of reparation um, of the people that they have brought to us. And um, as such, I think, as, as, as wonderful um, acts of curiosity, they're also, in a way, acts of love. Um, I've spent um, almost 40 years writing um, extremely fact-based books, in my case, in, on zoology and natural history. Uh, I thought it high time I wrote something more personal. I'm about to embark on a memoir I face at the outset, this relates to what the chairman was just saying about loss, I think, not only loss of both my parents, but also loss of uh, almost 20 years of notes, diaries, and correspondence. I wondered how, if any of the panel had dealt with similar sorts of loss, and uh, whether they could offer words of wisdom or perhaps even comfort about uh, how to deal with it. My only strategy at the moment for dealing with it is to write about the loss itself and my feelings about that and perhaps about the loss of, of documentation with other people in the book. Thank you. Um, this may be a rather pedestrian question, but it, 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 it's, um, it backs up the, um, the previous um, elegantly put question. It's, it's really to do with the limitation of the genre of family history. Um, I'm a, an academic writer, but I'm also trying to do something in the family way. Um, and it's um, we've we've had um, uh, we've had um, three accounts of fairly recent family history, all involving somebody, you know, a main person who is is, is somebody remembered and close. Um, my researches took me back to a grandfather, and then um, his grandfather, who was a bit of a secret, as it were, um, possibly because my grandfather spent the money his grandfather earned and went bankrupt and. Quite a lot of shame involved, um, but uh, that, that's by the way. Um, my question really is: assuming, if that's correct, that all, um, all, or, or, or many writers uh, writing in your genre um, don't have all the information they would like, perhaps because of the, the missing letters, or there were no, no letters written, or no diaries um, written or kept. Um, uh, then, what do you do? I mean. Do you, do you give up? Do you reach a point where you say, well, I've got enough? Um, do you, uh, or more interesting, do you kind of rely more and more on context? 
so you end up it's more of a life and times um, or do you start getting tempted by by you know, more of the fiction more of the pottery I'm interested in the concept of false memory syndrome in respect of families to what extent do the does the panel recognize this as a phenomenon and how is it dealt with? Very good. Well, all three of those questions relate to each other rather closely in that they're to do with the question of the evidence for, for the basis of the books. And um, so if we could talk a little bit, first of all, about the first question specifically, which is what, how do you feel about the loss of documentation, the big gaps in in the historical record, and how do you deal with them? I mean, Mary Kay, did you find that? Did you find that? There were lots of gaps. Um, I just filled them by putting the question and then saying I didn't know the answer. Um, I'm afraid there's a great deal of that. Uh, or I said, I, I imagine that's what happened. Stalin thought, I think. I mean, actually, I think it's one of, the, one of the things about the book that's very good, that it actually gives one a sense of what one cannot know. And therefore, these figures sort of emerge from the myths and disappear back into them again and become, become more, somehow more characterful as a result. Documents were obviously incredibly important for you, Jeremy. Also, the more you work, uh, the, the, the more you work at it, the narrower the gaps might get. I mean, you can feel that in Mary Kay's book, that something that started as a loom, a, a, a great gulf, began to close up somewhat when, as, as the research went forward. No documents in my case. My adoptive family didn't write letters. They, were, they didn't write at all, actually. Um, and uh, so there was, nothing, uh, there was nothing there. And there was absolutely nothing um, um, out there beyond the archive. And the archive was skimpy, to, to put it mildly. Um, so no information, lots of pottery to answer your question. I, I, I mean, I, it's probably cold comfort, but I, I've never known anyone work in this area who hasn't had really significant holes and absences and gaps. Um, and uh, a lot of, I think Conrad said that, you know, the main task of writing is covering up your defects. And I think, you know, that goes very true with this. I have a specific recommendation to the, to the first two gentlemen, because there's a, a book I always recommend as a model for how to move from the transition to things you know to things you don't. Um, and it's a book called Perfect Storm by a writer called Sebastian Junger, which was about this huge storm off the North Atlantic coast of America. Various ships were sunk in it, including one particular fishing boat um, that um, went out of, I think, Providence. And he does a masterful thing of cutting from the bits that we actually know from the record elsewhere. Um, and then the last sort of 12 hours of the ship, I think six young men drowned on it. He doesn't know. But he does an astonishing job because that's the point at which he then generally talks about what happens when ships sink, um, the physiology of drowning, you know, um, what they would have gone through in their last moments. And curiously, the fact that he doesn't actually know the specifics makes it more general and therefore more resonant. And that just as a technical thing is, I think, something you can often do, that um, the, the move to the bit you don't know can also be a move to the, to the general, and that can... Turn into a turn into a virtue. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> You're still yeah. about false memory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think on false memory. I mean, um, the question arises, doesn't it? If if you're thinking of your childhood, um, 
of how trustworthy it is. We were saying that earlier, or I was. Um, I think you've just got to signal to yourself and, and to the reader and to the text you're writing that there are areas of doubt here, that it isn't entirely trustworthy. I mean, this is the best kind of, a, this is the best kind of procedure I can think of, short of a full-blown investigation um, in a clinical situation. Uh, I, I agree, and I, I think signalling to the reader and making it clear that it's your version is very important and is the only way you can sort of stay honest. I mean, I, I realised an early point, as I said, my mother was one of eight, so there's a big family, and um, I realised quite quickly that trying to get everyone's different version would actually make it much more, in a way, invidious, because I'd end up choosing between versions, because mm -hmm. in family narratives, everything contradicts, not only what happened who, who did it, um, but also things like what the important point was, you know, as well, who said what to whom and what the real sting of it was. Um, and in the end, you can't get, um, I re when I wrote the book, my, I wrote the sentence that um, this family reality is, family, family life is not an agreed consent, you know, it's not a, a neutral rea objective reality like a map. And my American editor underlined it said, a map is not an objective neutral reality, which I was very struck with. Um, but you, ca you can't get a map. You can't get a thing that everyone agrees on. You can only tell a version. I think it's very important to make it clear that it's a version. Or, or if you're lucky, as I see it, several versions so that you're telling, because you, you put in what, uh, you take an incident and you put in what everybody has said. And that makes that's the story is what, what's been said. I think we have just time for a couple more short questions, but please do just ask short. I'll try and make it short, um, but I think I don't feel like it has to do with being short, and I don't feel like what you've been saying has to do with being short either. Uh, so I think it's a bit of an issue. But the thing that I really felt I wanted to say something about was your contention, Nikki, that each of these three very experienced authors is writing as a child. And I really wanted to take issue with that. I don't think any of you was writing as a child, which is not, to, not for me to dispute how you might have felt, but the simultaneity simultaneity in the mind of the capacity to feel like a child from moment to moment and feel like an adult at the same time is one thing. The idea of writing a text about being a child among adults is, a, is a, a clearly, from my point of view, adult thing to do. And an adult thing to do in terms of what it produces why and the sorts of things that all of you have so interestingly and indeed movingly raised about the business of writing and why you might start to write in the first place. Now Mary Kay didn't say but both Jeremy and John actually located the desire to write in something that preceded it by a long shot. I think those are sort of adult preoccupations I only wanted to say that uh, in the third, in the forties, my youngest sister had got TB, and uh, we called it consumption. And it was a very shameful thing. And she was exiled to the Galway to to have a long recuperation and so on like that. 
So for your mother to have to be a spoiled nun and have consumption was a very was a horrendous thing. I think she must have been a mother superior, actually. Thank you. So, a brief question. In starting to write the memoir and invoking Freud, Freud says that hate is older than love. In starting to write a memoir, is there a place that hate? Does hate hold an exemplary place? Thank you very much. Um, well, uh, Leslie, I'll just say that I chose my words rather carefully. I didn't say that they wrote, it was about what they felt. It was simply that, technically speaking, they are writing as children about their parents. And that is a different thing from writing about a subject which is not connected to you. Um, the second. Um, uh, yes, uh, is the short answer. Yeah, hate can be very important. Uh, I was thinking about the gentleman who was talking oh about Oh, yes, no, well, I, I was acknowledging that. No, it's all, I mean, it's, it's true. She, was, uh, she wasn't a mother superior, but she, she um, ended up running the teacher training school in the convent she taught in, in fact. So um, she was a very senior figure, and it caused a huge scandal when she left. Um, her name wasn't spoken for, for years then. But I uh, thank you for that. And what about hate as an as a engine for these books? It must, must have, mustn't it? There must be a place for hatred. Um, the trouble is that one feels that hatred is a is is, is a very prevalent mode in, in, in the, the memoir that goes right back to childhood. Um, one's anxious about the extent of, 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 of suffering and resentment that are disclosed uh, by the adult in reviewing his or her childhood. I mean, this has become a genre, um, and I fear it. I. I, I I feel very uh, inhibited in the front of it. In front of it, I, I find it very difficult to read. Um, but this isn't to say that there isn't the real thing as well, and that it can't be worked out. And they can't. And to go back to what I was saying earlier, writing is the work that you do to divulge this thing. You might well find at the end of your divulging of hatred that it wasn't so. It wasn't such strong hatred. That would be an interesting book to read. Is that? You're also flirting with the hatred that you may cause um, as you write about other people's lives or your life in relation to other people. And you're all the time kind of guarding yourself against that um, in, in the way you, you present their stories. So that, I mean, I certainly feel that I've in some way I've stolen these people's lives and they're not entirely my family and I've, had, I've felt very sort of anxious to be you know sort of wanting to propitiate them while also wanting to tell the story um, but then there you go which one is I mean, we were talking about this a bit earlier on, actually, about hatred, because yeah. particularly with reference to Julian Barnes's book, um, Nothing to Be Afraid Of. I don't know whether anybody's read that, but he is extraordinarily um, harsh about his mother and his aunt in that book in a way that I found, you know, really quite, quite shocking. And it does remind one that actually the, the writing is a very, very powerful, and sometimes a violent yeah. mode of activity. I mean, one thinks of 
often think that writers who have written about other people and destroyed them, specifically Pushkin writing about Salieri, for example. You know, Salieri was a perfectly, perfectly reasonable chap who had a career as a rather successful opera composer and taught Mozart and also taught Beethoven. I think he even may have taught Liszt as a small child. But what Pushkin did to him in, the, in that book has, has converted him into a, an eternal devil of a kind. And this is, this is, not, this is not so good. And, um, so, but I think you know, it's a very live thing. I suppose anybody who's writing any kind of book has to remember that, that if you're writing I mean, you know, words, I mean, my dad always used to say, you know, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. But that, of course, is That's absolutely so not untrue. true. So untrue. <laughs> so on that note, I think we'll finish. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 